listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Folks, my guest today is Sean Palmer. Sean's on the Missio Alliance Network as a contributor. He's also the teaching pastor at Ecclesia Church in Houston. That's the church that Chris C. founded and still leads. Sean's also an author. He wrote a magnificent book called Unarmed Empire, and he's currently working on a fascinating book that integrates knowledge of the Enneagram into teaching people how to be more effective public speakers and preachers. We covered a wide range of topics, but I was interested in getting Sean's thoughts on the Enneagram, particularly how it relates to preaching, and that's where our first question started. So I had this experience. So I have uh, been in ministry for a little over 20 years now, and maybe 18 months ago, I was Sunday morning delivering sermon uh, like I would normally do. And after it was over, one of our members came up and she goes, uh, I'm a I'm a type three on the Enneagram for those who are interested. And she came up to me and she's an eight and said that was the most three sounding sermon that I've ever heard in my life. And I looked back over what I said, particularly at the beginning of that sermon, and it was all about uh, kind of making plans and um, choices and some determinative things that I think are really helpful, but also come very naturally to me. And I thought, you know, she's probably right. And so I started paying a little bit of attention to who responded in what ways to which messages and knowing because of our community um, a lot of people have done a lot of intense and long-term Enneagram work. So they know about themselves really well and how they exist inside their number. And what I was noticing was that there were certain people who responded to certain messages in certain ways or certain parts of messages. And I could kind of see, Oh, this, this lady here, I know that she's a four and she's responding this way to this message. It's not just about how she's feeling or what's going on in her life. There's something about her um, that this really resonates with or doesn't resonate. So I started thinking more about that. You know, these communicators like me who aren't just in churches, but on any kind of platforms in boardrooms who lead management teams, who have to speak to groups of people, any group of people, you know, four or more people, um, that there might be a lot missed if we didn't have that kind of knowledge about ourselves. So starting with self-knowledge and then about, and the people that were in the room and how they hear different messages, what motivates them, what demotivates them, what captures their mind, heart and attention, how they are receiving things. Why are there some people who, if you talk about feelings too much, um, just totally check out. And if you don't talk about it enough are totally checked out. And especially coming from, you know, our intelligence centers of doing feeling and thinking. What does it look like to really press in on people who need to bring up a lot of feeling or people who need to bring up a lot of doing? Um, Because if I I think if I'm not intentional about that, then there are people who God has given me to care for that are going to get missed. So that's what kind of launched that for me is just wanting to be a more well-rounded communicator where the things that I was saying to people were actually connecting with people and doing the intended thing and that in a, in a church, you know, the size of my church, that we were getting a well-balanced diet, that everything wasn't about doing, doing, doing. And the people who love doing and respond well to doing really hop into that. But there are some people who they really need to think about things for a long time before they do or 
there are people who are repressed in their feeling and we need to help them um, bring up those sorts of issues so they can move forward in a healthy way. And they're the first ones to dive in maybe into doing something. Um, but we are a church. And so churches are 365, 24 seven, we can burn those people out um, too. So that was what launched it. And I think it's wise for communicators, even in a forum, like a podcast like this, to be mindful of the different ways that people receive information and then what they do with it once they receive it. Yeah, it's a fascinating concept. You know, I think most communicators with any skill have been taught that at least one third of your preparation has to keep the audience in mind and their context. You're definitely taking that concept and deepening it massively so when you think about the the triad centers, that makes sense. I think the average preacher or speaker could handle thinking through the filter of the three. But the Enneagram is nine types with subtypes. How detailed do you coach people down to the subtypes and communicating to subtypes? Well, I don't deal with subtypes or what some people call instinctual variances in, in my coaching of other communicators very much at all. Um, I think wings can be very important and subtypes can be very important um, at certain points, but because of the limited time you have in a communication, I think um, our intelligence centers um, are much more important. So um, if people are feeling repressed, thinking dominant, those kinds of things. So most of the work that I'm interested in right now, and I may find out differently um, as I get deeper into the writing, has to do with stances. Mm, okay. and, and so I want to know how people receive information and how they process it. And that's stances gets me closer to that. So, you know, for instance, my wife is a one on the Enneagram. I'm a three on the Enneagram. Um, she is in dependent stance, which she hates that idea. But the more she has thought about it, she sees it and I'm in an aggressive stance and it really does matter how we share information with each other. She knows if she's going to share information with me, my first instinct, not because I'm a man, but because I'm a three is to do something with it um, that I'm not going to feel something around it. And that I know that sometimes she is going to um, wait for me to instigate something or to take the lead because she is a, in a dependent stance. That does not mean that she is a dependent person. That means that she is going to be more concerned about me in an interaction than I would naturally be about her in an interaction. So, <laughs> so, so she's on the more virtuous end on that deal. Those things <laughs> yeah. are really, those things are really important. Um, so if you, uh, you know, if you've got a congregation and this happens in a lot of um, university towns, right, where a preponderance of the congregation identifies fives on the Enneagram, uh, those folks want a thoughtful, worked out process before they engage at a serious level. And that they also like to mock an idea in those circumstances is to mock a human being because they so closely identify with their ideas. That's something that a communicator, a pastor, for instance, would really need to know because you can lose your job over those sorts of things. And not only that, you've been well ineffective until you lose your job. Um, uh, so those are those are the kind of things that are just really important for 
communicators to know if you're if you're on a board, if you're if you work for a board, for instance, and they have a lot of fives just to keep it that same example. Uh, you have a new proposal project that you want to launch. You need to walk into that board meeting having done your homework um, because they are not going to sign off until they feel like that has really been researched and well studied and there is um, support for it. And they will support an idea even if they don't agree with it, if it seems like you've done your work and it's sound. So yeah, those are I, my I think. I think what you're sharing is extremely helpful because um, in the work I do, I help leaders study the nature of change and resistance. And you are doing that same thing. You are helping communicators take responsibility to improve their communication. Because I think what happens, right, Sean, is a lot of communicators say, well, they're the problem, right? Mm -hmm. They don't actually understand that the way we are communicating is contributing to the problem. And, and I think it sounds like you're giving us some tools to help us to take more responsibility for our capacity to truly communicate and hear what someone else is saying. Yeah. Well, I would hope so. And part of that is knowing how you receive information too and how you process it. So everyone doesn't process information the same way that I do. So I need to make sure um, just like a therapist would, just like a coach would, that I am disseminating information in ways that is maximally helpful for the people that I want to um, help and and enlist for whatever cause that we're a part of. And I, I think I think uh, stances are a good way to do that. I still am a little muddled on stances. It'd be helpful to hear just a quick overview of the three stances. Yeah, so there are three stances. Um, one, as I mentioned before, is the aggressive or assertive stance. And those are threes, sevens, and eights. Um, so I mean, the language around that is that they kind of move against others or take action to get their needs met. Then there is the dependent stance, which is ones, twos, and sixes. Um, some people also call that the compliant stance. Um, they move towards others. Um, and then there's withdrawing stance, which is fours, fives, and nines. And that's kind of moving away or inward um, when dealing with others. And, you know, my teacher, who you mentioned before, Suzanne Stabile, says that, uh, that stances really are kind of the, the heart of Enneagram work. And I have found that to be true. One, because you don't have to, I mean, you have nine stances. I mean, you have nine types, right? And then you have instinctual variances or subtypes. Then you have wings. Um, and then introvert, extrovert comes into play with that a little. And then all the other stuff, as, a, as someone who's done pastoral work, you know this, and you got all these other factors. Stances at least gives you, okay, this person is aggressive, withdrawing or dependent. And so that helps me kind of helps me help them. And it's also for people who get stuck. And I don't know where my number is and all this. Uh, if you go back and look at stances and how stances operates, that can at least help you narrow it down to three. Right. Um, and I find most of my work at this point isn't knowing as someone who's a three on the Enneagram. Oh, this is what it's like being a three. Um, but my 
where I have experienced personal transformation is knowing like I'm an aggressive number. And so that means particular things about the way that I operate in the world. And um, yeah, I have so many examples just in the last two or three years with me and my wife, with her being in an independent stance and me being in aggressive stance, just how things have played out. Um, I can go through our office, um, the church where I work and things that I have on staff and diagnose this happened because she's an aggressive person and he's a withdrawing person. And when they were both kind of in that, not thinking about it, just com- um, out of just their own compulsions, all of our own compulsions, that's why it happened this way. And this is what we need to look for next time. So I, I think it's, I think it's the gold of the Enneagram. I think I really appreciate that. I think there are still, as much as it's become so popular and so dealt with, there's still a grave concern of how many people use the Enneagram to try to inflict it on another person rather than the way you're describing it is much more pastoral. You're studying it in order to bring health, uh, be aware of your own impact on people. It's, that's really encouraging. Yeah, and the, so one of the crimes of the Enneagram is that people – make too much of it or too little of it. And we make too much of it um, by saying that I'm just this way. Like I'm an eight or I'm just, so I'm just this way. I'm a four. I'm just this way. You you have to deal with it. This is who I am. (laughs) Yeah. Just suck it up everybody. This is who I am. And and that's a very aggressive thing to say. (laughs) But what it, what it means, no, you have to understand your Enneagram number as the, as a mechanism, a methodology that you developed as a child to be loved. And it's not a virtue. Um, it doesn't make it a vice, but it's not something to be held as precious. Like you developed, I developed a false means of being loved. And it is displayed over time in our number. So that's not something to wear as a, 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 as a badge. Badge of honor. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's something to be worked through. And I think that's really important. But given that, um, and your number is what you do compulsively and without thinking, I get up and talk to a few thousand people on the weekend and we're trying to do X, Y, or Z as a community um, because we think it's in the best interest of our community or best interest of people around the world. I need to know how to communicate that. Now, as a three, you would expect me to say something like that because I want to do something to make, you know, I I want to help. I want to give you what you want as as a three. Yes. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah, another thing that'd be interesting to explore, just real quick, Sean. Um, I'm also still getting gaining clarity on the idea that I, I believe I'm feeling repressed. I'm mm-hmm. an Enneagram three. Mm-hmm. I th- feel like I have a four and a two wing. I don't know if that's within the rules, but I <laughs> I can feel both of those in me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've got a good friend who's quite an Enneagram uh, guru. And he would explain it that that I process the world with feelings, mm-hmm. but I'm feeling repressed, mm-hmm. so I quickly move it to my brain. Mm-hmm. Is that accurate to your understanding? I think yeah. I'm on the way to a solution, but I receive the world through feelings. So here, here's how that works in Enneagram in Enneagram wisdom. Steve, you take in the world with feelings. So in this conversation, you are very attuned to how you think that I feel, right? Yes. Um, and you feel very happy right now. You love me. Yes. <laughs> Mostly because of the accent. Um, well. <laughs> so you're, you're very attuned to that. And so you walk into a room, this really helps you in pastoral work and chaplaincy work. 
Um, you can feel what the room feels, the people in the room feels feel. So that means you're feeling dominant. Yes. Now as a three, what you're not going to do is you're not going to take your feelings into account when making decisions. You're going to say things like, uh, feelings aren't facts. Um, you're going to say, well, this, how I feel about it doesn't matter. Like this, these are the things that need to happen. You woke up today with an agenda of things to get done and how you feel about any of the things on that agenda are going to be secondary or maybe even tertiary to the primacy of how important those things are. Um, so where if you were a four who are also in, um, uh, in that feeling triad, the heart triad, um, you would be much more in tune to your own feelings and have a difficult time moving forward, getting the things done without feeling like it. Um, and threes go, it doesn't really matter what you feel like this has to get done today. Right? <laughs> um, and so that's what it means to be feeling repressed. And you don't have a lot of, you don't have a lot of time or compassion for other people's feelings because you're repressing your own. And you get tired of hearing other people how they feel a lot of the time when around their own personal decisions, because you don't consider that a weighty factor in making decisions. Um, so that's what it means to be feeling repressed. So as a as a communicator, um, it'd be really important for me if I were your pastor, right, to help you get under your feelings and to be honest about what you're feeling. But to do that, I have to get you to a point where you would value what you value, how you feel. Or intentionally stay in them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Rather than moving through them to productivity or, or intellect. Right. Could we play with another number, Sean, like um, any other number you want, give us uh, another form of repression with that number and the implication of it. Um. I would say, so we'll just do fours, right? Since it's really close. Um, well, let's do, let's do ones. Um, so ones are thinking repressed, right? So um, my wife, who is a one, who is extraordinarily smart, a bright person, really chased at the idea of being thinking repressed. Um, and, but what that means for ones who haven't done a lot of Enneagram work is that um, your feelings are driving much more of the train than you think. So she or my wife has particular opinions about things in the world that she has done a lot of thinking about and processing, a lot of reading, a lot of studying. But she felt her way into the thinking about it. So, so there might be a situation in the world that angered her, right? Um, and so her anger drove her to doing more thinking about it. And so she has to bring up the thinking. It doesn't mean that they don't think. Um, so, but she's also like, because you can be, whatever your dominant center is, some of the numbers can be repressed in the other two. And it's like a three-legged stool. Um but she also thinks thinking is doing. So ones are, because she particularly is kind of, is more doing repressed than thinking repressed. 
because she thinks thinking about something is the same as doing it, right? <laughs> um, and that's another way that people function in the world. Um, fives also think that thinking about something is, is doing it. Um, so you have thinking, feeling, and doing, and all of us are dominant in one and repressed in one, but given some various shades and which number is which, you can be more or less um, repressed in the other two. And they're all there. You're doing them all, all the time. Um, it's just about which one is kind of driving the train. So if you think of thinking, feeling, and doing as a tricycle, uh, there's one wheel in the front that is doing all of the, doing all of the steering and the other yeah. two in the back. And to have a balanced life, you're trying to make sure that the two in the back are at least the same size <laughs> as the one in the front and not kind of like wobbly or one's way bigger than the other. And, um, and a stool is another good way to think about it. So it's not teetering off, but everybody is a little bit shade is a little shade of different. Um, and a lot of that comes with life practice and, and things that only a person can know, like there can be, there are a lot of very productive ones in the world who are doing repressed, but they come home and they're exhausted, right? Because they have learned how to function in the workplace yeah. at a high rate of productivity. Um, and so they come home and um, you get this stereotype of ones where they want perfection and everything, but you get to their house and their house isn't really clean or put together. I mean, no, it's not, it's not that stereotypical um, super tightly wound one perfectionist that people get taught. That's because they have burned all of that off at work. They burned all of their doing, all the doing that they have to give. They, they did at work. Um, and just like some people like eights um, just don't have a lot of feeling to give. Right. So um, there's a, there's a story and I can't remember who told it of uh, a professional woman who worked in a, environment with a lot of other women and it was very collegial and they shared a lot and talked a lot and she felt like she didn't fit particularly with some people on her team she was an eight and she had to finally tell some folks that she worked with said look um, I love you but I've got about this much feeling very low level of feeling and all of that goes to my husband and my kids and so um, the individual person um it, it varies a little bit, but generally speaking, uh, those that stance work is where to figure out how that all works for you. So that's kind of a rough sketch. Uh, it's really helpful. And particularly you gave us several metaphors, but I think the tricycle metaphor is a great, very tangible way to think about it. You've also spoken elsewhere, Sean, just about, Lessons in leadership and um, learning how to let people treat you and coaching people how to treat you as a leader. I think I have found the Enneagram to be equally helpful because I'm a white male suburban lead pastor. Mm -hmm. I'm in the very center of power. And so I find that there are some people who ascribe to me a, a mistrust before I have lost their trust because of my 
stereotypical mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I've heard you, I think it was in, on your own past, uh, podcast, the Not So Black and White podcast, I think is where I heard you talk about how you, how you had to coach people on how to treat you as a human being. And I've also found that helpful just to show people I'm a human being. I'm exactly human size. I have feelings and thoughts because they tend to caricature me into something that I'm not. Mm-hmm. Tell us how the Enneagram is helpful in that or any, any reaction you had to that. Well, um, you know, actually that's weirdly something that I learned years ago from Dr. Phil of all people. Um, I had, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I had, I had, I'd heard him speak. I think maybe I had to watch a YouTube video or something. And he said, you train people how to treat you. And so there are things that all of us will accept, won't accept, um, behavior from other people. Um, there are places where we just, we just draw the line and say, no, that's never going to happen again. So in a, just a real world, everybody can do this sort of sense you do. And you make decisions based on that. Like you had, every parent has made a decision about what their children will or will not be able to say to them. Um, we make decisions about what our bosses will or will not be able to say, because if they go over the line, we're said, we're done, we're gone. Um, so I think to be really clear about if you're being treated in a way that is uh, unacceptable to you, somewhere along the line, you have suggested to people that that is acceptable to you. And it takes a lot yeah. of courage and um, to, to say, no, we're not, we're not going to do that anymore. Um, and there are, like, I deal with a lot of preachers who are at small churches. I've been in a small church um, before my lifetime and they complain about their pay, for instance, uh, and I haven't gotten a raise in however many years, and they'll say all these things. And um, let me tell you, it's a clarifying conversation to go to your board, your leadership, or whoever makes those decisions, and say, if I don't get a raise to this much, I'm leaving. <laughs> right? Um, like, because for pastors, food costs the same, and cars cost the same, and housing costs the same, and clothes cost the same. Um, as they do for everybody else. So that's one of the ways that we've trained people how to treat us. So in terms of the Enneagram, though, what's what I found really helpful is to have people around you who also have some knowledge of the Enneagram, because if the Enneagram does anything for us, it initially gives us grace to understand that there are people that we love who see the world very differently than we do and understand the world very differently than we do. And once you start seeing that, like, oh, I behave certain ways and they behave certain ways, and we can carry that with a degree of grace and um, benevolence toward one another. I have found it incredibly helpful to, in my own dealing with people, to say, oh, like, this is why I should treat so-and-so this way. And it's not coddling. Um, it's not caving. It's like, this is what will actually make them feel and experience me the way I want to be felt and experienced as a loving, caring, generous person who wants the best for them and for me. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Um, uh, my, my work is in family systems theory and there's a technique called differentiation mm-hmm which is the skill of being connected to people while being, if, even if you're in conflict with them, you don't write them off, you stay connected. And you're, you're definitely giving us a, a, a way forward to stay connected to a broader group of people, a broader range of people, 
while still leaving self intact. Exactly. I, I would, I would hope so. Um, and part of differentiation really is um, my wife's trained as a social worker and was a therapist for a year. She teaches now, but um, that, that idea, one of the toughest things, and you'll know this, Steve, from your work, one of the toughest things in life, whether it's with in a marriage or with children, with parents um, in a work environment is how are we together and separate at the same time? And knowing yeah, where just, that is exactly differentiation, like where I end and you begin what I'm responsible yeah. for, like what's on my side of the fence and then what's on your side of the fence and being okay with letting you own what's on your side of the fence without feeling like I need to take it from you or for you, but also owning what's on my side of the fence. Like this is my responsibility. This is, I said that I did this, I'm responsible. I didn't follow through whatever it was. Um, and it just allows so much when someone accomplishes something like it can be completely theirs without me feeling like I need to step in and take any credit for it. When there's disagreement, like where are the places where I, you know, where are the places where I messed up? Because I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to own um, what's mine to own and allow you to own what's yours to own. And the more I know about me, the better I'm able to do that for both of us. Friends, I first learned these tools of family systems theory when I served as a trauma chaplain. Many times a day, I would walk into a room and help people navigate what was really the worst moments of their life. What was most surprising to me was how my own anxiety would bubble up and sometimes get in the way of my ability to be fully present to people and fully present to God. And fast forward almost 25 years now, I use these tools of family systems theory uh, every day in my leadership. There are many of the reasons why I'm not only surviving in leadership, but, but thriving. And for the last year or so, I've been going all around the country and even internationally and teaching workshops so people can interact with this material. And they're always wanting more when I'm done. I usually just do a couple of hours, sometimes a day. That's why on March 10th and 11th coming up, I'm hosting a two-day interactive workshop where I'll give you all of these tools that I've been trained in and not only will you learn about them, but you'll actually begin to put some of them into practice right during the two days. It's not a conference. It won't be where you're just sitting and listening. You'll actually be at a round table and you'll be workshopping some of these tools right there in the moment. So you'll come away after two days having already experienced some of these things that we teach on the podcast. I know we're all very busy. We have a lot on our plates. We have a lot of opportunities for growth, but that's why I'm inviting you to sacrifice a couple of days of your time you can get tickets and more information at stevecusswords.com. If you order tickets, be sure to use the promo code podcast for a little discount. leadership situations generate anxiety in your life you don't have to give us an exhaustive list just give us two or three where you know if you're in this situation you're going to be anxious 
I typically experience anxiety when there is a lot of um, um, when there is a lot of conflict in a general in a body that um, and the the participants don't want to one or both don't want to actually work toward a responsible and honest conclusion. Um, so those things come up for me when there are strong disputes in a, in a church, because that's the context where I work, where I know that only one outcome is acceptable to one party mm. and that we are never going to reach that outcome. Um, because then I start worrying just about, and just to use Enneagram language, I'm a self-preservation three. Um, so I have a lot of extended preservation concerns, not just about myself, but about the institution as a whole and what the sacrifices will be. So those have always, since my first month in ministry, 20 plus years ago, have been the places that create the most anxiety. That's when I'm, when I'm not sleeping, it's usually kind of, what are we going to do about these two parties where we cannot get one party what they, what they want. Yeah. And when you say you cannot get it, you might also be saying you are not willing to give them what they want because it violates something core. Great. I think another thing, Sean, is particularly leaders uh, tend to be so others focused. Sometimes we can be the last to know that we're not well. How do you know when you're not well? Um, I know when I'm not well is when I start to um, check out. Um, when I feel like, oh, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to go in today, or I'm not going to give my best, or if I'm in a meeting and I have drifted off, I have checked out emotionally, and that usually happens where I feel like I've not been listened to. My thought has not been um, kind of acted on, encouraged, and it's like okay, I've got these gifts and if you don't want them, I'm just going to use them over here. And my behavior starts to slip in that um, I am, I am pretty, this has been a great glory and shame for me. It's like, I have a very addictive personality. So when I'm doing something, I'm doing it a lot until I just have to stop. And so if I'm doing things that are against my own habit formation, like Working out every day for me is habit form. That that's a habit that's been formed. If I feel like I don't, if I don't have motivation for doing that, if I don't have motivation for getting up and reading, if I don't have motivation for getting the things, one of the ways I know that I'm checking out is that I have a list of things to do and I don't want to do them. Um, if I'm kind of binging Netflix, those sorts of um, habits that degenerate and don't actually do anything. Um, when I'm not doing something, that's when I know like I'm entering into a bad place. Great. Yeah. Another sign in systems theory that there's anxiety at play is when there's an overfunctioning and underfunctioning relationship between two people. And particularly, I would imagine as a three and as a leader, I'm going to guess that you would be more prone to overfunctioning. Where have you seen in your life where you end up in an overfunctioning relationship with someone? It's really interesting, Steve. I actually, I don't think that I overfunction. And I think it's one of the places where I have been um, really deliberate because I spent so many years as a full-time solo pastor of a church. And um, 
for three years, it was very bad. And I thought, if I don't get out of this um, over-functioning, that is going to limit my productivity and my career as a pastor. Is actually one of the reasons I ended up at the church where I am now, is that we started looking seriously about two years before I came here. Like, where could we be where I could leverage my gifts, not have to function too far outside of my gifts too frequently, um, and not have to do it all? It's a place that, because I am so... Um, we are very, our family is, is family focused. We spend a lot of time, a lot of concern with our girls that we did not want to become, I did not want to become that kind of person. And I really owe that to the youth pastor that I had when I was a kid and the way that I saw him um, orient his life around the people who are most important. Um, I would probably have a tendency to under function in anxiety. Um, I, I am really great. You know, in Enneagram language, I would move to the behaviors that are what we would call on the low side of nine. Nine. Yeah. So um, that is just checking out, um, numbing out like, oh, I'm going to sit and play. Um, I'm going to sit and play video games all day. Um, that's when I know that I am. That's much more the key to me of being in an anxious place. Than, than doing mm, too much. Great, thank you. The final question, I, I think it's unique for church leaders, but I ask any guest. I think because we get our paycheck from the church, we can conflate our identity as God's beloved son or daughter with our vocation as God's employee. And I think it's very hard for us who teach others the love of God to experience viscerally for ourselves the love of God. So, Sean, when in your life do you feel most fully loved? I feel most fully loved when I'm with my children. Uh, I have two daughters. They're 16 and almost 13. And that's when I'm most myself and when I feel like um, not only is God good, but God loves me. Um, mostly because I see them as such a gift. And there's a whole story kind of behind that. And, um, my wife and I were never supposed to be able to have children. But there is something that is so fully comfortable and beautiful about that, that I, I, this is how most people feel. Um, this is how most people feel most of the time who think, <laughs> who believe that God loves them. Um, and there are moments with them. And then there are moments in worship where I truly feel um, the love of God and and they're, they're fleeting. Uh, one of my presuppositions that I would kind of walk around in the world is that most of us question whether or not God loves us. Um, and I've seen that in myself and people in my family and people in, in churches. But those are the occasions where God's love becomes real. And God, God's love also becomes real to me in small community. Small community is super important to me small groups. I have a group of friends that we have been friends from college and we get together and there's not much that we haven't thought about over the last, you know, 25 years. Um, but, um, in, in particular moments with those guys, whether one of us is experiencing crisis or is in a moment of joy and celebration, that is just pure love. And so God's love really is mediated to me through other people. I don't have sort of you know, transcendent, holy moments, me and God. I hardly ever get it just reading through scripture. I, though, I, though I have friends who do, 
I hardly ever get it on long walks in nature, though it's happened to me in nature a lot, especially in the mountains. Um, but it's usually through um, people and having moments of experience with them to go, like, oh, this is this is what the love of God shows. It's usually with flesh on it. Yeah, very good. Sean, this has been delightful. Thank you so much for being willing to chase some new thoughts with me. I really appreciated you coming on. Well, I enjoyed it. It was great to uh, get to meet you and spend some time talking. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyouralliance.org.